The scripture that we'll be looking into is printed in your bulletin. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's my pleasure to introduce to you a dear friend, partner in ministry, student in ministry together, wonderful counselor, wonderful friend, a friend to us who's been a part of our team since our pre-launch, beautiful, two beautiful children, a wonderful, hilarious, warm wife, grateful to have them on our team, but he's also a gifted speaker and he loves the gospel. So I just want to welcome uh, Mr. Sandash John to come and share with, the word with us. Good morning. So we've been in a series entitled The Vision of Metro Press, Gospel-Centered. And for six Sundays, we've been thinking through, well, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? What it means is that we actually believe that the gospel changes everything. That the gospel leaves no stone unturned. And for six Sundays we have had the privilege to sit under the teaching of Donnie, Hijun, and John as they taught us what it means to be lost and then found. What it means to find oneself. We learned that the gospel defines what it means to be loved. What it means to be saved. And last week, Donnie showed us from the Psalms took us through praying through that psalm in such a way that being gospel-centered informs what it means to repent. This morning, we're looking at how the gospel impacts what it means to be forgiven. Now, the passage Donnie read just now is actually one of my favorite in all of Scripture. Because I'm the type of guy that I love 
reading stuff on paper. But I love more seeing it work in life. And as I was preparing this sermon, late into the night, even last night, trying to cut things out so that I know the mind can only endure what the seat can endure, I'm trying to cut. It's midnight. I see Shine. She goes, how did it go? And I said, I think the content's there, but I'm lacking the affection because I'm working so hard. I should have been at the camp for the past week. And this morning I said, Lord, as I was praying through Psalm 24 and Psalm 29, I said, Lord, you're the king of glory. Give me that affection. So, excuse me. This story is flesh and blood. This woman is not a character in a parable that Jesus taught. Not that there's anything wrong with being a character in a parable Jesus taught. But she's the real deal. She's a for real, for real prodigal that gets ambushed by the love of God in Jesus. And I can relate to that. And I was having this disconnect, literally just like, I got the content, but I'm, I'm forgetting this. And then out of the blue, while I'm preparing this morning, I get a text from a friend from way back. When I say way back, I'm talking my BC days, before Christ days, okay? And he texts me and says, where do you go to church? Now, he's supposed to be in Maryland, but I know if he's asking me where you go to church, it means he's somewhere nearby. And uh, today, my friend from long back, Shibu, his wife, Bina, his awesome kids, Daniel, Danya, and Divi are here. And God has kindly used you guys, I want you to know, to remind me that this story is real. And I'm not too different than that woman. So thank you, Lord, for bringing what I needed through a friend from way back. So we're here at this story. It surrounds a meal. And Metro, we love having meals together. And we love hanging out. And that's what this is. There's a meal that's being hosted by a Pharisee named Simon. And in those days, it was common for people, and especially Pharisees and teachers of the law, the celebrity pastors of the day, to hold these open dinners in their home. But it wouldn't be in their home. They would hold it in the courtyard outside their house so that it became the equivalent of our modern-day block parties. And so what would happen is the invited guests would come. They would sit at what would usually be a three-sided table. They would recline at the table so that they're leaning on one arm, they have the other hand to make points and talk and eat, and their legs are horizontal, but their feet are pointed out from the table. And they would have important conversations. Now, because it's a block party, uninvited guests from around the hood, they could stop by, they could listen in, and perhaps gain something from having listened in to these pundits talking about important stuff. So on this occasion, Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus. Problem is, he's suspicious of Jesus. He's heard about him, but he's suspicious. He's sizing him up. And the way we know that is it shows in the way he welcomes Jesus. Because in verses 44 to 46, Jesus points out that Simon failed 
to give him common courtesies that a host would give a guest. In those days, if you invited someone to come to your house, you were inviting them to take time to get out into a dusty, dirty road with their sandals, walk all the way to your house to join you for a meal. And so when they arrived, having known they took time, they took effort, they are, they, they're tired. And they came all the way out to join you for a meal, you would first Put your hands on both shoulders and it was okay back in the day to do that. It was a bro thing. Okay. That would be one way. Jesus says, you didn't give me a kiss when I showed up. But then what they would do is they would offer a basin filled with water and a towel so that the guests could clean their dirty feet. Jesus says, you didn't even give me water to wash my feet with. And lastly, they would pour anointing oil on the guest's head. Point being, by the time they show up to recline at the table, to join this meal, to engage in conversation, the guests are feeling refreshed from head to toe. Jesus says, you didn't give me anointing oil for my head. Simon is suspicious of Jesus, and it shows in what he didn't do. So now among the uninvited guests from the hood... A lady shows up, but she's not just any lady. Luke takes time in verse 37 to say she was a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. So we're talking a small town where everybody's all up in each other's business. Everyone knew that she lived a sinful lifestyle, and she knew it. But it didn't deter her. So just her presence, especially in that culture, would have made people feel uneasy. But what she does next takes uneasy to the next level, higher or lower, depending on your perspective. She takes time to walk around the crowd and stand behind the reclining Jesus, where his feet are pointed out at her. And the scriptures say... She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. Weeping doesn't mean... Weeping means what I do. Tears, snot, it's just horrendous. She is weeping so much that the scriptures say that her tears began to fall on his feet. She gets a hold of herself for a second, looks down and sees, oh my goodness, my wet tears have fallen on Jesus' dirty feet and it's mixing with the dirt and the dust and now my snotty mess is turning into Jesus' muddy mess. But now she takes uneasy to the next level. She kneels at his feet and she loosens her hair. Now, You need to know this. It's shocking. Um, The Talmud, which was the second most important text to Jewish people in the day, second only to the Torah, said this. Women were not supposed to let their hair down. So y'all are really bad Hebrews. Okay? Women were not to let their hair down, with one exception. If you're married... 
And even then, you can only do it with your husband present, and even then it has to be in private. Otherwise, you do not let your hair down. A woman with a sinful lifestyle in that town, known to everyone, loosening her hair, forgive me for being graphic, she might as well have lifted her shirt and flashed the entire crowd. That is the same effect. That's the same shock value. And then she takes her hair, the scripture says, and with her hair, she wipes the feet of Jesus wipes his feet, drive her tears, clean of the dirt. And then, I mean, she, she just keeps upping the ante here. She starts kissing his feet, full view. And then, she had an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. It was called nard. She breaks the seal, pours it on Jesus' feet, and the scent fills the courtyard. Full view. And Jesus doesn't stop her. Part of me is like, I wouldn't stop her either. <laughs> that kind of feels kind of nice. Get my feet massaged. Simon looks at this and says, you know what? I knew I was right. Simon's suspicions are confirmed. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him, that Simon, saw this, he said to himself, he's talking to himself, he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Can't be a prophet. Because prophets would stop her, rebuke her, and send her out. Now Jesus does what only Jesus can do, and I love this. He read his mind. And verses 40 to 43 Jesus, having read Simon's mind, says, Jesus, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. So he tells him a little parable. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Simple story, not very profound. There's a money lender. He lends out money to two people. The one dude owed a little money. Turns out the dude didn't have a little money to pay him back, so he's in debt. Another dude owed the moneylender a lot of money. And ain't no way he could pay the moneylender back. So, simple parable. The moneylender does what moneylenders never do. The moneylender cancels both debts. He frees them of their obligation. End of story. Jesus takes that story, applies it, to the people around him, and now that application comes to us in 2012, right here in East Falls. What does it mean to be forgiven in a gospel-centered context? I believe this passage tells us three ways. First, we must first start with recognizing our many sins. Second, 
we must realize the totality of the forgiveness offered to us. And third, having recognized our many sins, having realized the totality of the forgiveness for all of those many sins, third, we respond with unrestrained love. So first, we recognize our many sins. Look with me at verse 47. Therefore I, that is Jesus, tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Simon is so misguided. Simon thinks the test of a prophet is to know whether she's a sinner or not. That's retarded. Because all you had to do in that town was be logged in to the Twitter feed and you would know she was a woman who had a sinful lifestyle in that town. Everyone knew, but the most important person who knew was her. She knew experientially what Donnie preached last week about repentance. Excuse me. Repentance always begins like this, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Many sins, she knew she had many sins. She knew, Jesus knew, she had many sins and she believes that he loves her still. Listen, she had many sins, and that's sad. Okay, the parable that Jesus said even suggests that some have a lot of debt. She had many sins. But you know what's more tragic? More tragic than her having many sins? Is that Simon is blind. There is Simon and he can't even see that this woman is reaching out in a true act of repentance, is demonstrating the purest of love. He can't see it. Simon is so blind that the coming Messiah he has been studying about and teaching about and praying for his whole life is right there in front of his face. He's so blind. He can't see that before him is the one Donnie preached about last week. The better David. The true Solomon The truest Uriah is right there. He can't see him. You know why? Because he thinks he doesn't need forgiveness. How do I know that? Look at the way he responds to Jesus when Jesus asks him a question. End of verse 42, Jesus says, Hey, Simon, which of the two debtors will love the money lender more? Simon goes, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You suppose... You suppo- I hate attitude like that. I'm Indian. I don't roll with disrespectful attitude like that. When I ask you a question, you know the answer. Respect yourself and respect me 
and tell me the one who had, you know, the bigger debt. Not, I suppose. That makes me want to get up and slap someone. I can't stand that. That is Sundosh-centered core value number one. Ain't got time for people who disrespect me. The gospel-centered perspective, it changes everything, right? Does Jesus dismiss Simon because of his blindness? No. Instead, we see Jesus looking past Simon's judgmental heart and appealing to him and saying, Simon, I have something to tell you. We see Jesus looking past the judgmental heart and seeing a lost son. Seeing a man created in the image of God, corrupted by many sins, in need of forgiveness. That's what Jesus sees, and he contends for Simon's heart and tells him a parable and asks him a question. And in asking the question, you know what he's doing? He's saying, Simon, the answer is this close. It's in your head. It just has to get to your heart, and you will know what she knows. For real, for real. That is the gospel-centered perspective. Those who judge you, you don't repay with judgment. You move towards them. That's what Jesus is doing. That's spectacular. It makes all the difference in the world. Now, Simon's sins are less than this woman's sins. Okay, remember the parable. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus wasn't being, you know, disgenuine. Simon may have fewer sins. But the problem is both of them have debts that they cannot pay back. Both of them are insolvent. They both need, listen, the money lender to forgive them their debt. So what does it mean to be forgiven? We come back again. It means this. We must first recognize our many sins. We need to remind one another that we would ought to recognize our many sins. And it is not a once and for all event. You don't say, I have many sins. Come to Christ. Walk down the aisle. However that happens, I'm a Christian and you never repent again. Donnie preached about this last week. He observed, he said, repentance seems to be an allergy among Christians today. I think that observation is spot on. And what needs to happen, and the core value of this church is, gospel-centeredness results in a daily lifestyle of joyful repentance. Every day, every day, you spend time thinking about your many sins and you grow in the recognition of those many sins and you do it and it's joyful because as you grow in the recognition of your many sins you grow in your realization that you need a savior and that can only make you more thankful that you got one now it's important very important that you hear me say this it does not stop at recognizing your many sins because if, if, if we're here and we stop short 
And what we end up with is a low-grade guilt that's like an undercurrent informing everything we do and say. Or worse, there's some of us in this room who are truly paralyzed by guilt. Paralyzed by the condemnation they feel for their sins. If you stop there, if we stop there, then we are not gospel-centered at all. We will have missed it. And that would be tragic. You must first recognize your many sins, but then number two, you must realize the totality of the forgiveness offered. Again, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. They have been forgiven. And at the end, verse 50, he says, Your faith has saved you. Gospel-centered forgiveness means this. Our stories does not end with death. It ends with life. It ends with life abundant. It ends with life everlasting. That's why the gospel is good news. Now, as I said, we need to put a check to make sure to make sure that we're not stopping short. We need to ask ourselves, we need to ask one another, do I really believe that my sins, every one of them, my many sins, every one of them are paid for in full. They're gone as far as the east is to the west. So far has he removed our transgressions. It's gone. Well, if I do, then am I living in that freedom, in that realization? We must constantly ask ourselves that question. And I need you to ask me that. I struggle with that. I've actually been to counseling to tell people, to tell the counselor. I've looked across and said to the counselor that, you know what I struggle with? I love preaching that you put off sin and you put on Christ. I love preaching it. But in my private moments, I get stuck at feeling so bad about myself. And all I end up doing is hating myself, not my sin, hating myself. So I need you to ask me, because theologically, and with with Shibu, being a shiny sitting here, even they would say, theologically, I'm like the woman, okay? Even in practice, many sins. But where I'm tempted, where I'm tempted is to be like Simon. I'm tempted to think that I can go in the couch, pull out some spare change, and pay off what I think is a little debt. I'm tempted to think that somewhere, and those of us who struggle with that low-grade guilt, I would say this. I would say somewhere in our hearts, there's a Simon-like tendency to put false hope that my obedience may result in the forgiveness. And it's not easy to discern. That's why we need one another. I need a brother like Donnie. I need to be able to almost fillet myself in front of him and ask him to speak in to my life. Ask me those questions. We must ask that of one another. Now, the realization that all our sins are forgiven, how does it happen? A remarkable way. The money lender in the parable is God. Duh. I know you know that. And the debtors are sinners. Duh. I know you knew that. 
How does the forgiveness of sins happen? How does the debt get paid down? It disappears. It's like they never owed any money. We're all still friends. Let's go out to eat. No. The way it happens is the money lender pays the debt down himself. At great cost to himself, the debt is taken care of. And so the debtors are set free. And so what that means is in order to realize the totality of the forgiveness of our sins, we need to listen carefully to the cries of Christ. Look at this story. You notice that Simon has a speaking part. You notice that even the crowd speaks. Does the woman speak? The woman with many sins, does she speak? No. Who speaks for her? Jesus. And he still speaks for her. And he still speaks for us. When was the last time you listened to the cries coming from Christ on our behalf? I'm going to ask you to do something childlike. Not childish, childlike. I'm going to ask you if you would just close your eyes for a moment, please. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, come down the aisle, none of this. This is what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you because we are a church that's gospel-centered. And in this church, we value the cries of Jesus from the cross. I want to go over the cries of Jesus one more time. So that if by chance you're sitting here, and you have been freshly made aware of your many sins, if we have been made aware, and we realize we need to grab hold of the forgiveness we've been offered, then listen to these cries. Especially, brothers and sisters, if you struggle with that low-grade guilt, with your eyes closed, listen to these cries. First, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Second, I tell you the truth. Today, you are with me in paradise. Third, woman, behold your son. Man, behold your mother. Fourth, the cry we hear together every Sunday, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth cry, I thirst. The sixth, it is finished. And the final cry, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Please open your eyes. Thank you for doing that. And this is what I want to say to you. Every one of those seven cries was necessary because, and the agony of those cries, it was necessary because of our many sins. And here's the good news. Every one of those cries and the agony of those cries was sufficient for the totality of forgiveness for every single one of our many, many sins. So then what? 
It changes everything. It changes the way we respond to it. Verse 47, one last time. I tell you, her many sins are forgiven, for she loved much. The better translation is, that's why she loved much. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. And follow this, but he who has been forgiven little, loves little. I hope what we tried to watch in that scene made you a little bit uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. And I'm a fairly emotional guy. Again, Shiny, Shibu, and Bina have been watching me cry in church for years. Shibu, even the smirk on his face right now, he's going back to the 90s thinking this dude would be crying for years when he hears anything, okay? But then most of you are not like that, especially my boy Danny. Danny don't cry but nothing, man, okay? Danny would look at a scene, like, see, I would look at a scene like this and be like, <laughs> Danny would be like, I wish I were more like that. <laughs> but you've got to ask yourself this question. What's the intended impression for us today? Let's say that we are pretty much folks that don't like PDA, all right? We ain't down with that. So you can't just make that happen. Okay, PDA for Jesus. No, that's stupid. What I want to ask you is, what would it look like for you to be so lost in love with Christ because of His reckless, raging, furious love for you. What would it look like? The gospel changes everything. Maybe it's the way you worship. You'll find yourself, if you, especially if you're given to singing, you'll love worshiping Him passionately, affectionately, in your car, in private, at church, you could truly sing of His love forever. Maybe it's the way you pray and you find yourself, I just want to keep talking to Him and talking to Him. And your conversation ends up being a day long. You keep talking to your Savior. You keep opening the Word, listening to Him what He said. It transforms everything. Maybe it's the way you serve in ministry and you're spent, you're doggone tired, but your love, like, like Donnie Priest with the Jacob and Leah and Rachel thing. It's, it's, it's seven years, but it feels like a day because I'm so lost in love with the one who has forgiven me much. What would it look like for you? There is something we're supposed to learn and ask ourselves from this passage. But one of the ways that it should look like for all of us, so here I go being general here, Jesus said, here are the commandments that are the most important. Love the Lord your God with everything you got. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. You ought to love one another as I have loved you. Verse 44. Then he, that is Jesus, turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? That's gorgeous. That is essential. That is essential to gospel-centeredness. That is essential to gospel-centered forgiveness. Do you see this woman? The invitation is this to everybody who hears my voice today, starting with me. The invitation is this. 
It is an invitation not to manufacture forgiveness, but it is an invitation for us to pass on what we have learned of first importance that Christ Jesus, according to the Scriptures, was crucified for sinners of which I am the worst. We are to pass that on. And there are people in our lives to whom we are to pass that on. Listen to this quote from Paul Tripp. This is so saturated with gospel-centeredness, I'm going to read it twice. Paul Tripp uh, said, Mercy is the grand agenda of God. Listen to this. So good. It is the kind, sympathetic, and forgiving treatment of others that works to relieve their distress and to cancel their debt. Let me say that one more time. Mercy is the grand agenda of God. Mercy is the kind, sympathetic, and forgiving treatment of others that works to relieve their distress and cancel their debt. And so now, forgiveness has a glorious vision. What forgiveness means now is that there are people in your life, there are people in my life, and I'm getting challenged right now, who have many sins against you, against me, and they owe you and me a debt of pain. And because we recognize our many sins, and because we realize the cries of Jesus on our behalf were sufficient to cover all of those sins, we now look at those who have a debt of pain against us. Okay, They, they owe us. There's a debt. We now look at them. And we now have the power to not walk away, but to walk towards. And through suffering, because it is not easy to pay down a debt yourself. Through waiting and sacrifice. See, by faith, listen, we're justified by faith, right? Jesus said to her, your faith is what saved you. If we were justified by love, okay, we would all be damned to hell. All right? The love comes as a fruit of having experienced forgiveness, which leads us to have faith. By faith, we receive the forgiveness. By faith, we give forgiveness. And by faith, we now wait for God's transformative grace and mercy to work in that person's life. And sometimes you come against a Simon and you got to ask them a question and it plants an answer in their mind. And my favorite verse in all the Bible, it's my life verse, says this, being confident of this, he who has begun a good work will be faithful to complete it. And so now, as I close... Now what it means to be gospel-centered is that it changes everything.
it changes the way we're forgiven. And in a moment, we're going to sing together. And with great affection, maybe unrestrained love, we can sing that truly transformed hearts are still, the impossible is very possible. For real, for real, changed hearts are happening, can happen, through a gospel-centered community. That's what we're praying for East Fall. So pray with me right now, please.